So this is sightalive.org, Relationship Sexuality Trauma by Robin E. Brickle, N-A-L-M-F-T. Having healthy sex in relationships after sexual abuse. Sexual trauma, abuse, and violence impact a surprisingly large number of people, maybe even you or someone you know. One in nine girls and one in 53 boys under age 18 will experience sexual abuse or assault by an adult, reports the anti-sexual violence organization RAINN, RAIN, Rape Abuse Incest National Network. Accurate statistics about child sexual abuse are difficult to determine because it is often not reported, says the National Center for Victims of Crime. According to the Child Maltreatment Report 2010 by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 9.2% of victimized children were sexually assaulted. One of the most tragic outcomes of sexual abuse and assault is the negative impact on the sense of self and how healthy relationships work. Sexual abuse, especially in childhood, is deeply devastating. Not only do some victims endure violation from those they depend on to survive, they are often forced to hide the truth. Their mental, emotional, and physical growth must adapt to accommodate repeated terror, isolation, duplicity, unwanted, unavoidable arousal that their bodies and minds are not yet developed enough to understand. Another of the many grave casualties for the trauma survivors, the meaning of consent. How do you enjoy healthy sex and intimate relationships if earlier trauma triggers terror or confusion? I'm sorry. How do you enjoy healthy sex and intimate relationships if earlier trauma triggers terror or confusion around sex? Yet I see an amazing inspiring desire to heal, also present survivors of sexual assault and abuse. Survivors have every right to heal and get the help they need to move beyond the trauma of abuse and enjoy healthy sex and relationships. When I say move beyond, we're not saying get over it, move on, or any of those insulting languages. Um, well, we're, well, you know, what is being said is forward motion at all reasonable costs. No matter what roadblocks or difficulties you may experience, they're not your fault. No matter what shame or pain you will still endure, you can heal and move forward to find healthy love and sex. Eliminating confusion, clarifying consent. It's important to know the difference between sex and abuse. See the first post in our series to clear up confusion around sex unwanted arousal and abuse. We'll actually read that next. I'm glad they put the link up. Knowing about consent is vital to help survivors of sexual abuse view their past experiences with clarity. Once you can see the difference between sex and abuse, you can recognize how your healthy desire for intimacy comes from a different universe than the power grab forced on you through an abusive sex act. Sex is consensual and is something that you want. Unwanted arousal during unwanted sexual contact has nothing to do with choice or healthy desire. If your body responded in a sexual manner to sexual abuse, you experienced arousal non-concordance. This is a physiological response but biologically built into your body, not a sign of desire, choice, or consent. Arousal in no way means that you wanted it or enjoyed it. Sex is a decision in your brain, something you want of your own free will and you can enjoy. A healthy sexual encounter will include these things. You have consented to the sexual encounter. 
Your brain is saying you want it because it's your free choice. It is likable, pleasurable, or enjoyable. Moving past abuse towards sex. When we say moving past, that means moving forward. Sexual abuse may trigger strong emotions linked to sexual desire or behavior for trauma survivors. And um, I don't want to say negative emotions. I want to say it can trigger sensations that remind you or not always remind you, but sensations that are linked to the sexual abuse. When something is scary, it triggers the brain's fight slash flight slash freeze response, specifically the amygdala, which we can't consciously control to just be different. We have to feel differently. As we know from research, neurons that fire together wire together. This means fear and, and sensations linked to this sexual abuse can become triggered automatically hardwiring to sexual responses because of past abuse. This is why trauma survivors often experience disgust, pain, discomfort during sex, or terrifying flashbacks from the past, even when they are safe with someone they choose in the present day. Healthy relationships for trauma survivors. A healthy relationship, one based on love, compassion, and caring, is one place a trauma survivor can learn positive ways to experience sexual pleasure, desire, and consent. Healthy relationships for trauma survivors can be tremendous places to heal. See, healthy relationships matter more than you think. Safety and secure attachment in a relationship enables healing and allows you to enjoy good sex with your partner. When you are in a, when you are in a committed loving relationship or when you are in a ethical, casual relationship and your partner or partners are aware of your history of trauma, you can learn how to communicate what you need and want to feel safe. Asking for what you need and want, especially asking your partner to honor your need and want for emotional safety, helps you understand that your partner or partners are there for you. You can describe what you need and want to feel safe so that you don't get negatively triggered. When you understand that abuse and sex are not the same, you can start to explore being vulnerable and experience feeling safe sexually. Healthy relationships with love, whether that's romantic, if it's committed or whether it's compassionate, if it's casual, caring and enjoyable sex can grow when you and your partner or partners can say what you need and want and build trust in each other. All of this is possible. It's very important to know what you need and want to feel safe and enjoy sex and be able to share that with your partner or partners. Some needs and wants you may want to share, need to share with your partners may include choosing to have the lights on or off Choosing to have sex in a certain place or certain places. Scheduling sex with your partner so it's expected. Leading up to sex with the routine of routines you enjoy. Whether that involves you and your partner or partners having a meal together or cuddling with each other or something you like to do on your own that helps you feel grounded and safe. Perhaps you like taking a bath or putting on something that you feel beautiful and comfortable in. You being the one to initiate your partner or partners letting you take the lead and going at your pace. Asking a partner or partners not to come up behind you, kiss your neck, or do I say certain things that may trigger you. Some trauma survivors are comfortable with those things, some not. Some people are, some people aren't. It's okay. You and your partner or partners 
may need to try many things to see what works for you. Your own preferences may vary based on your your based on your need based. <laughs> your own preferences may vary based on your unique experience or unique experiences. What's important is taking time to figure out what you need and want to feel safe and to openly share these ideas with your partner or partners. This will help your partner really be there for you during sex, which will ultimately make for a stronger, more connected relationship. Working with a good trauma-informed therapist will also help on the road to healing by teaching you how to feel grounded and safe and notice that you're not in danger as you embark upon healthy, trusting relationships. We must have connection to live and thrive. Humans are wired for connection. Couples, monogamous or not, are each other's best co-regulators. And if past trauma is preventing you from building healthy, loving connections, there's so much hope for the future. When trauma survivors begin to develop self-compassion, healing can occur. This is the road towards a healthy relationship with yourself, healthy relationships with others, and a healthy sex life that is pleasurable, safe, and wanted. I love that these things are said. Because these things are my reality. I, I, I was able to eliminate confusion. In fact, I, I, I eliminate confusion. I clarify consent. I am moving past abuse towards sex. And I do have healthy relationships, sexual and non-sexual. And yes, I am a, uh, sexual abuse trauma survivor and I have self-compassion I have healthy relationships with others I have a healthy sex life that for me is pleasurable safe and wanted and I do have a healthy relationship with myself okay so let's get to this when is it sex and when is it sexual abuse or assault chances are many of you reading this have experienced sexual violence or know someone who has Unfortunately, intense shame around sex can lead the path to for many people who have experienced trauma. I want to clarify. I want to clearly define the difference between sex and sexual abuse. My goal is to help everyone review their past and present encounters more accurately, move towards self-compassion, healing, and meaningful relationships. You are entitled to a healthy sex life that you want and enjoy. Many sexual abuse survivors feel shame, guilt, or fault about themselves for what happened. They may feel this way for years after the abuse has stopped. Survivors may even become unsure whether a past experience was actually abuse or assault, believing they must have done something to quote-unquote cause the event to happen. Sexual abuse can leave a person feeling mixed up about their own sexual feelings. Confusion blurs a person's sense of healthy sexual desire and trauma-related fantasies. Self-doubt can persist, especially if the abuse happened in childhood. Survivors may struggle to understand their own impulses and question what is normal. Is something about me bring this on? Did part of me want it? Is this how I get love? I want an attention. Did I ask for this? Am I too dirty for real love? I don't want anyone to experience this kind of shame, guilt, or doubt around sexual violence. Rape, sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse of any kind is never your fault. It was not your fault. You didn't ask for it, and it wasn't sex. It was abuse. The two are not the same. Sex starts and ends with consent. Sex is a consensual bodily pleasure. Sex is equally wanted between 
equally empowered people. Sex occurs with two consenting adults or more than two consenting adults if y'all like to have group sex. Children can't make consent because they're not adults. As an adult, you cannot consent when you're drunk or passed out. Without consent, it's not sex. Without consent, a quote-unquote sexual act is abuse and they qualify as assault, rape, abuse, or molestation. It can't qualify as consensual sex. Yes, the definition of sex is that straightforward, but my body responded in a sexual manner. Trauma survivors may report arousal, lubrication, or an erection during the act of abuse. This may make them feel betrayed by their bodies and wonder if they actually wanted it or enjoyed it. If you haven't seen it, I strongly encourage you to watch the TED Talk, The Truth About Unwanted Arousal by Sex Educator Emily Nagoski. In this talk, she explains arousal non-concordance. In simple terms, the body naturally becomes aroused when touched in certain ways, even if the person touched doesn't like it or want it. The, physiolog the physiological response to lubricate, get an erection, or even have an orgasm has nothing to do with consent. It doesn't indicate whether a person wants or likes the sexual behavior happening to them. It's simply the way a person's genitals respond to an act that is sexually relevant. The only valid proof that determines consent, proof that you want or like a sexual experience is your free will and the decision in your brain. If you ever could stop coughing or sneezing during an interview, or you had gas on an airplane, or you were sweating profusely when you didn't want to, you can understand that bodily functions doesn't always match with what you want and like. Unfortunately, people get confused about intent when it comes to genital functions. This confusion can lead to misinformation, unfair pressure, and misplaced shame around sexual abuse. Tragically, using a person's genital response during sexual violence saying, well, you got aroused, you must have liked it, is yet more abuse. Your body responded against your will. Denying this is a weapon that assailants, denying this is a weapon that assailants use to make you their target feel shame and submit. Popular culture can heighten confusion between desired sex and sexual assault. An excerpt from the book, Fifty Shades of Grey, provides a definition of assault by example. He caresses my behind gently, and it burns as he strokes me round and round and down. Suddenly, he inserts two fingers inside me, taking me completely by surprise. I gasp. This new assault breaks through the numbness around my brain, Feel this. See how much your body likes this, Anastasia. You're soaking just for me. Although I didn't read this book, my recent training with sex educator Emily Nagoski provided this passage as an example of arousal non-concordance. This quote essentially defines sexual assault. And as do many abuses, the speaker incorrectly believes genital sexual arousal is quote-unquote proof that the victim wanted or liked it. In this excerpt, the narrator describes numbness around her brain and that she is taken completely by surprise. Yet he says, see how much your body likes this? Disregarding the powerless state of her mind. Unless you know the difference between sex and assault, this kind of material may, full, may fuel ongoing misconceptions that cause shame and guilt for assault survivors. Be aware, making fictional sexual assault popular and exciting in our culture doesn't make it good or healthy for real life. This is not sex. This is not pleasurable. This does not sound consensual. It alarms me how easily people may mistake a sexual response from someone with less power as a sign of love or desire for sex. This is not love, it's abuse. The notion that she wanted sex because she was wet or he wanted it because he was erect is entirely wrong. 
That is the rape and assault culture speaking. This is the same culture in which nearly one in two women and one in four men report sexual violence in their lives, reports the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and where one in two trans-identifying people have experienced sexual violence as the Center for Family Justice. What about bondage, domination, slash admission, sadism, and masochism, BDSM? This Fifty Shades of Grey excerpt does not represent acts of BDSM, although it was billed as such. True BDSM includes consent. Everything that happens in BDSM is consensual, meaning the people engaging in the act agree that they want it. Takeaways. Know that sex... Listen to me now. Takeaways. Know that sex must include consent. Know that everything else is abuse. Know that children cannot consent to sex. Know that the body doesn't decide, the mind does, you do. The body may have experienced arousal non-concordance, arousal against your will, and an act of abuse, but that does not mean you wanted or liked what happened. Your body responded as it did because the act was sexually relevant. Just because your body responds does not mean that you want it. Know that you have the right to say no and to be heard and treated accordingly. Know that you have the right to say yes to what you want as an adult, whatever you want, and, be, and to be taken at your word. Know that self-compassion is the way forward to a place where you will know that these statements above are true. By understanding the difference between sex and sexual abuse, trauma survivors can understand that unwanted touching they experienced in the past was not sex, and that in our lives, we all, including trauma survivors, can choose to have sex, which is always consensual, in ways that feel safe and pleasurable. The body does not decide, you decide, you consent, if and only if you want it. I struggle with the concept of sexual relevancy because that should, what abusers do to a person they're victimizing or people they're victimizing, I wouldn't say sexually relevant. I would say sexually torturous is the much better way to put it. This is Brick, uh, Brick, Brickle and Associates LLC Individual Marriage and Family Therapies. This is written by Robin E. Brickle, M-A-L-M-F-T. Here we go. Sexual assault, what it looks like, how to prevent and help survivors recover. This is Brickle. This is uh, the same Brickle and Associates.com site again. Same person wrote this. Um, every 107 seconds, someone in America is sexually assaulted. The vast majority are adolescent women. Each of us can learn something and do something safely to make a huge difference to reduce risk, prevent trauma, help more people heal. While victims include men, adult women, and children, sexual assault is most prevalent among women of high school. And college age. Ninety-one percent of the victims of rape and sexual assault are female. Nine percent are male. One. Wow. It says one in parentheses, so that must mean that it's making references. So I'll just read it without that. Um. Here we go. 
So while victims include men, adult, women, and children, sexual assault is most prevalent among women of high school and college age. 91% of the victims of rape and sexual assault are female, 9% are male. 44% of victims are under age 18, high school age. 80% of victims are under age 30. One in five women are sexually assaulted while in college. About four in five assaults are committed by a person known to the victim. What is sexual assault? Sexual assault consists of any unwanted sexual touch. While it includes raping, groping, any sexual contact or behavior that occurs without explicit consent, is sexual assault, says Brain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. The degree of violence does not matter. Rape and drug-facilitated sexual assault are two of the most recognizable forms of sexual assault. But assault can also happen when someone rubs up against your body without your consent. It can happen with any uninvited touching or holding that violates your personal space and boundaries. Placing responsibility for sexual assault where it belongs. We need to question and challenge attitudes that blame the victim. Oh, well, what was she wearing? Was she drinking or did she lead him on? This view comes from ignorance or, mis or misinformation needs to change. Sexual assault is in no way the victim's fault. What a person is wearing, whether they are smiling, flirting, partying, whether they're drunk or sober, does not matter. Unless that person freely says yes to sexual behavior, that behavior counts as assault. Victims of assault need to know you did nothing wrong in that moment. You just happened to be there when this person or people decided that, that your body was up for grabs. The more attention and awareness we can bring to, to examine our biases around sexual assault, the more hope we can reduce the incidence of assault and the suffering and shame of survivors. Why failure to resist does not mean consent. Without awareness and education, attitudes and misinformation can make difficult to recognize sexual assault when it occurs. By the way, I wouldn't say failure to resist. I would say unable to resist. That's much better language. Some people mistakenly fault the victim who does not appear to say no to what is happening. We need to know that victims may freeze with terror that is triggered when someone violates their sense of safety. This is especially true for survivors of prior traumas. Most of us understand the fight, flight, or freeze response to fear. Once triggered, our neurobiology takes over and it's very hard to shut off. When a sense of danger overwhelms the nervous system, it is not uncommon for sexual assault victims to freeze. As a primal reflex, freezing can increase the odds of survival. After all, if your victim isn't fighting, why not ease up the attack, save your energy? I wouldn't say you're a victim. I would say human being, being who is being victimized is much better language again. Unfortunately, freezing rarely enables escape from a person with intent on forcing sexual activity on someone else. When a person feels violated, especially for a person with a trauma history, paralyzing fear is common. So misunderstanding that victims do nothing to resist assault. Whether what they do is freeze to survive the overwhelming trauma happening in that moment. It is never right to blame the victim for what happened, no matter what they were wearing or where they happened to be or whether they failed to stop it. I wouldn't say failed to stop it, I would say unable to stop it is much better language. How to reduce your risk. Basic personal safety is key to prevention. It is impossible to remember that the vast majority of sexual assaults happen in a setting with people you know. Tips for staying safe include make sure you go to social events with people you know are safe. Plan ahead of time to look out for each other. Have plans to check in with each other and make sure each of you are okay. If you're going to be drinking, watch your drink and don't accept open drinks from others. Agree to go with a designated non-drinker who normally takes the role of watching that. What, uh -huh. Agree to go with a designated non-drinker who knowingly takes the role of watching that the situation stays safe. Know your limits when it comes to drinking. Think about how to remain aware enough to make safe choices and follow your gut when something doesn't feel right. Hel helping others reduce their risk. As one person may feel 
too insignificant to matter. Please know that the difference you can make is huge. Because so many acts of assault begin in social settings, a bystander can interrupt in safe and helpful ways to help prevent an assault. Follow your gut. If a situation does not look right and it feels safe to interrupt, say something. Hey, I've been looking for you. We need to talk. How's it going? Is that okay with you? Sorry, but we have to leave. If a situation looks unsafe, you can get the attention of someone in charge, such as a security guard or someone working at the venue to help intervene or call 911. For bystanders, RAIN provides the helpful key care, create a distraction, ask directly, refer to an authority, or enlist others. RAIN provides more resources for safety planning, campus safety, and how bystanders can help. Recovering from sexual assault. If you have experienced sexual assault, it is not your fault. Even though you may be feeling guilty, ashamed, even devastated and worthless after what happened, know that it is possible for you to take care of yourself and to heal, and it is not too late to begin. The important thing to do is tell someone you can trust about what happened. If you do not know someone you can trust, there are local and national resources you can to talk to someone who is trained to listen and guide responsibly to the help you need. See more resources below. Signs of change in the media on campus and the legal system. Fortunately, thanks to the hard work of victims, doctors, therapists, and advocates, more people are starting to recognize sexual assault for what it is. A trauma and a crime that needs greater awareness and prevention. The Washington Post quoted 50 verbatim accounts of sexual assault from its poll of over 1,000 college students, empowering victims to speak out to a public audience. More colleges are holding surveys of students to learn the extent of unwanted sexual behavior to see what is happening, put better safeguards in place. Celebrities, including Lady Gaga and Mary J. Blige, are using their music as a powerful way to reach survivors and challenge devices of and challenge the biases of blame. Lawmakers are beginning to help better protect the rights of rape victims. State Department official rape survivor Amanda Nagayan has been a forceful has been a forceful advocate for a bill now introduced to Congress, the Sexual Assault Survivors Rights Act, which aims to protect victims' rights, victims' rights to the evidence whether or not they decide to press charges. Your voice matters. If you think your voice is too small to matter, please know it does matter. If you think you alone can't make a difference, that is not true. You can make a huge difference. Each of us can learn something to help prevent the next incident and empower another victim to get help. Sexual assault, sexual assault happens too often and devastates too many lives for uh, too many lives, L-I-B-S, for us to accept without greater awareness. It is so important for all of us to educate ourselves about what we can do. Where our numbers come from, statistics about sexual violence, National Sexual Violence Resource Center, two statistics, rape, abuse, and incest national network, RAIN, more resources, education and support for victims of sexual assault, RAIN, Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network has excellent educational resources, support for victims and a hotline about sexual assault page, hotline 1-800-656-HOPE, Survivors of Incest Anonymous, uh, local resources, Alexandra Sexual Assault Awareness Program, hotline 703-683-7273, advocacy, no more, a campaign for public awareness and to help engage bystanders in ending domestic violence and sexual assault. Rise to support passage of the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights. Songs. Caution, this content may be triggering for survivors of sexual assault. Lady Gaga, Till It Happens to You. Mary J. Blige sheds spotlight on domestic violence in whole damn year video by Ben and Carly Spin Magazine. We have 10 inspiring songs about domestic violence and sexual assault that will move you by no more staff. Um, this cause means a lot to me, so I'm speaking up via my podcast.
All right. Here we go. Loving a trauma survivor, understanding childhood trauma's impact on relationships. September 24, 2015, Robin E. Brickle. Here we go. Survivors of childhood trauma deserve all the peace and security that a loving relationship can provide. But a history of abuse or neglect can make trusting other persons feel terrifying. Trying to form an intimate relationship may lead to frightening missteps and confusion. How, we, how can we better understand the impact of trauma to help survivors find the love, friendship, and support they and their partner or partners deserve? How people cope with unresolved trauma, whether the trauma was physical, sexual, or emotional, the impact can show up in a host of relationship issues. Survivors often believe deep down that no one can really be trusted, that intimacy is dangerous, and for them, a real loving attachment is an impossible dream. Many tell themselves they are flawed, not good enough, unworthy of love. Thoughts like these can wreak havoc in relationships throughout life. When early childhood relationships are a source of overwhelming fear, when absent, insecure, disorganized attachment leaves a person feeling helpless and alone, the mind needs some way to cope. A child may latch onto thoughts like, don't trust, it's not safe. Don't reach out, don't be a burden to anyone. Don't dwell on how you feel, just move along. These ideas may help a person cope when they hurt so badly every day and just need to survive, but they do not help the emerging adult make sense of their inner world and learn how to grow and relate to others. Even if, the, even if the survivor finds a safe, loving partner later in life, the self-limiting scripts stay with them. They cannot just easily toss them and start over. These life lessons are all they have so far to survive the best way they know how. Noticing trauma's impact on behavior and mood. Many times, trauma survivors relive child experiences with an unresponsive or abusive partner, an important topic for another article. This often happens without the ability to see the reasons why they feel compelled to pursue unhealthy relationships. Beneath awareness is a drive to revisit unresolved trauma and finally makes things right. Of course, childhood wounds cannot be repaired this way unless there are two willing partners working on changing those cycles. But if these forces remain un unnoticed, survivors can get caught in a cycle of abuse. Even with a safe partner, even with a safe partner, trauma survivor may experience depression, develop compulsive behavior, and eating disorder or substance dependence to try and, re and regulate their emotions, have flashbacks or panic attacks. Feel persistent self-doubt, have suicidal thoughts, seek or carry out the reverse behavior they experienced as a child. Pa partners or trauma survivors may want desperately to help, but partners need to be clear that it is not your problem to fix, and you don't have the power to change another human being, says Lisa Ferenc, LCSW, in a post for partners of trauma survivors. Rather know that both of you deserve to connect with resources to help you find comfort and healing. Seeing trauma's impact on relationships, it is important to recognize unhealed trauma as a dynamic force in an intimate relationship. It can supercharge emotions, escalate issues, and make it seem impossible to communicate effectively. Issues become complicated by heightened reactions to common relationship issues, emotionally fueled disagreements, withdrawal or, withdrawal or distant or responsive behavior, aversion to conflict and inability to talk through issues, assumptions that the partner's against them when it's not the case, Lingering doubt about a partner's love and faithfulness. Difficulty accepting love despite repeated assurance. Despite it, difficulty accepting love despite it repeated reassurance. In a relationship, a history of trauma is not simply one person's problem to solve. Anything that affects one partner impacts the other in the relationship. With guidance from therapy, partners begin to see how to untangle the issues. Many people do not even realize that they have had traumatic experiences. Trauma-informed therapy works by helping couples begin to see how they experience traumatic abuse or neglect, how it still affects them and impacts their current relationship. 
This approach enables the therapist to, to provide specific insights to help couples separate past issues from present ones. Progress often comes more readily through a combination of individual sessions and work as a couple. Trauma-informed therapy helps partners give each other the gift of what I and other therapists call psychoeducation, learning to understand each individual's story, how it impacts their relationship, and how to process thoughts and emotions in healthier ways. The importance of self-care for trauma survivors and their partners. Trauma survivors and their partners have different needs of support. How can one respond when the other is grappling with mental health issues? How do you calm things down when overwhelming how do you calm things down when overwhelming emotions get triggered? It takes therapy for couples to find answers that are most healing for them. But some general tips for trauma survivors and their partners that can help are have a really good support system for each of you in the relationship. Make time for family and friends who are positive about your relationship and respect you and your loved ones. Find a trauma-informed therapist to guide you as a couple or as, or as individuals in your efforts to better understand yourself and each other. Find resources outside of therapy such as support groups or other similar activities. Take time for psychoeducation. Learn more about the learn about the nature of trauma, self-care, and healing techniques like mindfulness. For example, one helpful model is Stan Tacton's Couple Bubble. This is a visual aid to help partners see how to become a more secure, well-functioning couple. Surrounding yourself and your partners with an imaginary bubble means that the couple is aware in public and in private they protect each other at all times. They don't allow either of them to be the third wheel for very long, at least not without repair. In this way, everybody actually fares much better. See more helpful resources below. Communication tips for partners of trauma survivors. Building a healthy bond with a trauma survivor means working a lot on communication. Grappling with relationship issues can heighten fear and may trigger flashbacks for someone with a history of trauma. Learning how to manage communication helps couples restore calm and provide comfort as their understanding of trauma grows. For example, couples can use self-observation uh, self to recognize when to slow down or step back as feelings escalate. Practice mindfulness to raise awareness and recognize triggers for each of you. Develop some phrases to help you stay grounded in the present and redirect your dialogue, such as, I wonder if we can slow down. I wonder if we can slow this down. It seems like we're getting triggered. Can we figure out what's going on with us? I wonder if we're heading into old territory. I'm thinking this could be something we should talk about in therapy. I wonder if we could try and stay grounded what is going on for us. Is that possible? Communication can also help a partner comfort a loved one during a flashback. Techniques include reminding the person that they are safe, calling attention to the here and now, referencing the present date location and other immediate sounds and, and sights, offering a glass of water, which can help stop a flashback surprisingly well. It activates the salivary glands, which in turn stimulates the behavior regulating prefrontal cortex. Healing childhood wounds takes careful hard work, but it is possible to replace old wounds bit by bit. Finding a therapist who can recognize, acknowledge the hurt, which the survivor has carried alone for so long, is key to repairing deep wounds. Partners may decide to work individually with their own trauma-informed therapist while working with another as a couple to provide the resources they need. When a survivor of early trauma can finally find comfort and connection with the therapist and then with their partner, the relationship between the couple can begin to support deep healing as well. The more we understand about the impact of trauma, the more we can help those touched by it to go beyond surviving and find the healing security of healthier, loving relationships. More helpful resources. So we have helping a partner who engages self-destructive behaviors by Lisa Ferenc, LSCW, LCSW. Trauma-informed care, understanding the many challenges of toxic stress by Robin Brickle, MALMFT, Sid Rand Institute, resources for traumatic stress education advocacy, books, 
wired for love, how understanding your partner's brain attachment style can help you diffuse conflict and build a secure relationship by Fantacting PSYD MFT. Allies in healing. When a person you love was sexually abused as a child by Laura Davis, trust after trauma, a guide to relationships for survivors and those who love them by Aphrodite Maxakis. Mindsight, the new science of personal transformation by Daniel Siegel. Those are the books, articles, and websites. quiet for a little bit because I was thinking about answering more of the questions so let me I'll do those other articles later but let me go on ahead and uh, get directly to the point and I'll be back HuffingtonPost.com the dating advice therapists give sexual assault survivors Jane on big little lies and starting to date years after being raped Here's the advice therapists give real people in the same situation by Brittany Wong, June 25th, 2019, 1.48 p.m. East Coast time. It can be incredibly difficult to have a healthy relationship and sex life after sexual assault. Years and years can pass before you feel connected enough to your body to even think about getting intimate with someone. On Sunday's episode of Big Little Lives, we got a rare depiction of just how complicated the experience can be. After Carrie assaulted her, Jane, who's who is um, being portrayed by Shailene, Shailene Woodley, the actress, decides to give Corey, her co-worker at the aquarium, a chance. Their date isn't without its hiccups. Corey goes off on a long, unwieldy tangent about sustainability and the sourcing of seafood which Jane luckily seems to find endearing. And then there's the botched kiss. Corey goes in to kiss Jane and she punches and pulls away. It's not you, she tells him after he apologizes. I just have to idle on neutral for a little bit. That's kind of my MO right now. Virginia Gilbert, a therapist in Los Angeles, says Jane knows she needs to give herself time to process how she feels. And she asserts good boundaries for telling Corey she's not ready to become physical. Um, Corey's fine cortical island on Nutri by the episode's end Jane's walls have broken down a bit and the pair are slow dancing in a driveway Jane's reaction is a perfect Jane, sorry, Jane's reaction is a pitch perfect representation of someone suffering from post-traumatic stress who's, trust, who's trying to trust again said Virginia Gilbert a psychotherapist in Los Angeles and again That's her, her title, and she's from LA. I think Jane demonstrates a lot of self-awareness in those scenes, she said. She knows she needs to give herself time to process how she feels, and she asserts good boundaries by telling Corey she's not ready to become physical. Jane is making progress in her own way. There's no quote-unquote right way to start dating again after sexual trauma. It's going to be jarring regardless, but there are ways to make it a little easier. Below, Gilbert and other therapists share the general advice they give sexual assault survivors are starting to date again. One, take as long as you need to be by yourself. After, after an assault, saying no to dates can feel like a form of self-protection. Again, after an assault, saying no 
to dates can feel like a form of self-protection. That's okay. You're on your own timetable with processing this. Be gentle with yourself and avoid rushing into dating, even if well-meaning friends and family push it on you. If you dip your toes back into the dating pool and hate it, it's entirely okay to pull back, said Megan Neck and Dank, a psychotherapist in Sacramento, California. It's fine for your needs to change, she said. Healing isn't linear, and you might feel good about going on some dates initially, but then notice your anxiety increasing and decide to slow down. Listen to this. Be gentle with yourself. Whatever reaction you're having is normal, and communicate any boundaries you need. Two, you plan the date so you feel in control. It's completely natural to experience hypervigilance. It's a common, sim- it's a common symptom of post-traumatic stress. Went on a date with a new person, said Kimberly Resnick Anderson, a Los Angeles-based sex therapist who worked with trauma survivors. Due to post-traumatic stress, some women, quote-unquote, freeze when faced with certain requests. Men, too, like going on a walk at, at night with a guy they just met. She said it's that kind of trauma in the body that makes it hard to date. You have men who experience that with women as well. To counter that feeling and regain some control of that situation, take the lead and plan the date to a T, Resnick said. Meet in a public place where you feel totally comfortable, drive your own car, take an Uber there, or a Lyft there, or a taxi, or Uber, or take a train there. Set a predetermined end time and have an excuse ready to go. For instance, I have an early conference call, so I want to be back home by 10.30. Three, coordinate a safety check with a close friend. This is a good this is a good rule of thumb for anyone to bolster your sense of security. Let a friend know who you're going out with and where you'll be, said Stephanie Gorlich, a therapist in Detroit who works with sexual trauma victims. If things are going well on the date, you can shoot your safety check or a quick smile and they'll know that you're having a great time, she said. If you're looking to make an early exit, the safety check becomes your opportunity to make a graceful exit. Four, you don't have to talk about it with this person immediately. There are myriad things you could talk about on your date. The sexual assault doesn't need to be one of them. You are, un- you are under no obligation to share experience with anyone you're casually dating, said Kristen Dio, a counselor in Texas and the co-host of the podcast, Pop Culture Therapist. Your stories is yours alone, and you get to choose when or who you want to tell, she said. You can still set boundaries without sharing your story. Five, identify the signs that you tell someone is trustworthy. Sexual assault can severely lower your expectations for men. And to be fair, sexual assault can severely lower your expectations for women. Not every person is a threat, but it can take months, years, or decades to regain trust and feel comfortable in someone's company. If the person you're seeing is safe and worthy of your trust, Gilbert says they should have these three qualities. They should respect your boundaries without taking things personally. They don't rush things or pressure you to change your mind about getting serious or getting physical. At last, their actions should match their words. If they say they're going to do something, they follow through in parentheses. Six, make sure you're comfortable with make six, make sure you're comfortable with your sexual self before you get physical. Enjoying sex again or for the first time ever can be difficult after sexual trauma. There could be a mind-body disconnect that makes it feel safer, less triggering to disassociate from your body rather than embrace it. Before you have sex with someone else, you need to reconnect with your sexual self and get to know your own body again through self-pleasure. Touching yourself mindfully in your erogenous zones and finding out what it is like to feel your own touch can be a good reintroduction of your sexuality after the assault, said Sylvan Neves, a London-based psychotherapist who specializes in sexual trauma therapy. 
Breathe in deeply, focus on the touch, but if you suddenly have images or memories of the assault when you touch yourself, definitely stop. That's how you know these parts of your body need more self-care before you can allow someone else to touch you there, Neve said. Seven, set good boundaries if things get physical. Certain interactions with your date might trigger you. A certain touch might remind you of the assault and cause you to completely freak out. You can't prepare yourself for all those moments. You can't prepare yourself for all those moments. But setting sexual boundaries and hashing out a definition of consent helps. The right partner should be happy to oblige, Dial said. Some survivors feel like they're going to lose a great part if they won't have sex or be physical with them in the beginning, she said. That's untrue. The right person will understand and be respectful. I'm still making sure that I um, answer the question for myself. Um, after I was sexually traumatized, I, I had sex, full-blown sex, um, in ways that wasn't me being true to myself in the sense that I took every sex opportunity in the past. Now, what I, it, and it was very flashbacky, some hypervigilance, but my partners were very patient and understanding. Nobody ever clowned me. I was fortunate in that way. And now, here's how, well, here's what sex, my sexuality is like. I need to explain this. I have full-blown sex in moderation. I don't have too many partners because that can easily get me infections and diseases, as well as unplanned pregnancies and being an unplanned parent. And I don't ever have bareback sex. I never have bareback sex. It's all safe. Um, I always have safer sex. I always have safe sex. I always make sure that there's condoms and birth control used each and every time I have full-blown sex. And I also don't have myself under sex where I don't frustrate my own sex drive. Um, I don't infuriate my own sexual needs as a human being. Um, that's true for me in my personal life, and that's also true for me in my future on-screen, uh, adult film life. Um, I said this before, but I want to say this again. Most of my relationships are on-screen and off-screen. Most of my relationships are spent in spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy and intellectual intimacy 
and interpersonal intimacy, meaning I spend most of my time not having sex. Most of my relationships are non-sexual and some people would say, but you said you're hypersexual without all of the sex addiction issues. So how do you make yourself happy? I self-pleasure. Um, but then there are other times where I have no interest in sex. I want to do something different. I have no interest in masturbation. I want to do something different. So every week I self-pleasure. But because as I become more and more of a public figure, I have other things that legally and morally, excellently um, occupy my time as well as my attention and my duties. So, I spend more time pleasuring people, and people pleasuring me in terms of intellectual stimulation, as well as social intimacy and having a mutually enjoyable emotional intelligence as well as connecting in terms of conflict intimacy, like we handle differences of opinion or different ways of living and thinking in peaceful ways. We do more of that. Very little of my relationships are sexual, very little. And so, I do notice attractive persons. Um, I don't stare creepily. I just gaze at them loving, G-A-Z. But my gazing at them is not a leering stare, not the creepy stare. Most of the time I glance because when I'm out in public, you're moving around, walking like I do. I have to glance at an attractive person and keep moving forward. Then there's some people that we do catch each other's eye and we just lovingly gaze at each other. Sometimes we have to keep moving because we got other things we need to be doing. Sometimes that happens. Um, what is sexuality like for me now? Um, Personally, I'd say here's what I I had every sexual struggle you think of being a sexual trauma survivor. Now what I do is I only watch porn that is ethical. If it's not ethical, I don't watch it. If it's not ethical, I don't pay for it. I don't mind paying for ethical porn. I view erotica that's ethical. I don't view erotica that is unethical. I don't mind paying for ethical erotica, but 
the unethical erotic of I don't even deal with it. I avoid it. I'm into ethical written and audio porn. I'm into ethical written and audio erotica. The written and audio porns and eroticas that are unwholesome, I just avoid them at all costs. Um, I do want to say that when it comes to my sex life, I'm very big on being a sensitive lover. I'm a sensitive lover who does sensitive loving to other sensitive lovers. Um, I, I decided I want to be in a, I want to, I said I wasn't going to say this again, but it's very important since I really brought it up that I need people to really understand. I decided to be an erotic, um, I decided to be, I decided to do erotic films, right? Which means that I want to do erotica films. That's the same thing. And the reason I want to do that is because, a new reason, new reason. I want sensuality, romantic love, and sexual desire to be depicted in all of my erotic films so I can help uh, the people who want to do erotic dramas and erotic thrillers. Basically, this is what I want to do. I want to be a part of nudity and film, right? Sexual or non-sexual for me. That's what I want to do. An erotic film is usually a film that has an erotic quality that may create sexual feelings, as well as a philosophical contemplation concerning the aesthetics of sexual desire, sensuality, and romantic love. I want to do all of the above. Sex or erotic scenes are to be found in a wide range of genres and subgenres, with genres that have a sexual or erotic component, typically including the term erotic in its description, such as erotic dramas, erotic thrillers, sex comedies, coming-of-age films, romantic dramas, besides others. I want to do those things. Love scenes erotic or not have been present in films since the silent era of cinematography. I want to do those things. Pornographic film, on the other hand, is a sex film which, which does not usually claim any artistic merit. Sex scenes has been presented in many genres of film, although there are some which it is rare. Many actors and actresses have performed nude or partial nude scenes or have dressed bathing ways considered sexually provocative by contemporary standards. By contemporary standards, it's important in their careers. I want to do all those things. I want to do all the above that I just read to you about sex and film. Cool because I want to help heal people sexually. I do, I take that very seriously. Um, so I gotta have on-screen sensitive lovers and off-screen sensitive lovers. And I know how to protect myself and have the right people protect me from any sex crimes that some people may want to do to you know, a person like myself who is you know, a, an adult star, you know what I mean? Let's put it that way. Okay, that was a lot, those were uh, seven, 
tips for dating a survivor of sexual abuse or assault written by Renee Fabian. Clinically reviewed by Jill E. Dano, LSC, LCSWR. As a sexual abuse survivor, dating terrifies me. Abuse taught me that a relationship mean, meant losing all my ages and performing sexual acts I didn't want to. No, wasn't an option. Subsequent relationships have been mixed at best and a partner who got mad when I froze during sex and the dates where I could barely squeak out what my job title is because I'm so petrified. Survivors like me are not rare, especially considering the statistics. So according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, every 98 seconds in America is sexually assaulted, including both male and female victims. This means that at some point in your dating life, odds are you will encounter a survivor. If we're going to be dating, if we're going to be dating a lot, we're going to run into someone who's probably a sexual assault survivor, says Cynthia Stalker. A licensed clinical social worker with more than 30 years of experience is really pretty common. Dating as a survivor often brings out traumatic memories, sensations, and emotions because of past experiences. When a current partner is empathetic, educated, and understanding, however, that can make dating easier to manage for both parties. With that in mind, our seven tips for dating a survivor. One, Get educated about trauma because trauma is so common, it's important to be educated about how it affects people. In short, trauma impacts the mind, body, and soul. Intimate relationships can produce intense trauma reactions because these situations often cause the strongest reminders of a harmful past and the body and brain react based on these past memories. This can manifest in a number of ways from fear, physical intimacy, and trust issues to flashbacks and body memories to a highly tuned fight or flight response. While it might be frustrating as a partner, these responses are born out of the way the brain and body protect the survivor during that trauma. None of this is the survivor's fault. Survivors need to let their mind and body be just to save their relationships, which takes time and patience. That's why getting educated is so important. Resources such as Rain's website are a great place to start. Two, let survivors tell their story on their, on their schedule. Disclosing past assault or abuse can be one of the hardest things, can be one of the hardest moments in a relationship and also one of the most critical. It's important a survivor has the space to share their story when and how they want. For someone who's going through the experience of coming out about their sexual assault, that's something that they're going to want to do in their own time and in their own way, says Stalker. There's no wrong or right way for them to do that. That experience of sharing their story is up to the survivor, not up to us. As a partner, be prepared to hear these stories with empathy, understanding, respect, and confidentiality. I don't give someone all the details at once as, as a survivor. I need to see that they can be patient early on and not because it's a manipulation, but that they are genuinely trying to be understanding of something that is out of both of our control. Three, communicate, communicate, communicate. Like all relationships, communication can't be emphasized enough. It ensures both partners are on the same page and help survivors so they have enough space to process their trauma within a relationship. Communication, good eye contact, asking questions, not telling me how to feel, giving me a choice slash knowledge of plans, it's the most important aspect of relationship to one survivor, she adds. Not telling me how I'm supposed to feel or how and, we, and when it will get better is the big thing. Taking the time to communicate how both partners feel at any given moment can go a long way toward building comfort and trust in the relationship. The thing that makes me most comfortable as a survivor is having open communication with my partner at all times, but especially during bad days or during sex, says survivor Kelly O'Brien. We both make it a habit to check in with each other often and talk about everything too. Whether it's just how we are feeling that day or our past, we are open and make sure we are each up to talking about it at the time. Four, put consent front and center. In addition, prioritize consent in the relationship from the big stuff like having sex, even the smallest choices. What makes me 
feel most comfortable is being with a partner who prioritizes consent, not just in our sexual romantic aspects, but in every small way. From my ability to make my own choices about my body, how I look, what I wear, and my identity, to what we are each responsible for in our lives, says survivor Elena Leary. Trauma is often the result of a series of significant threatening boundary violations for survivors. Having a sense of control of what happens to your own body makes a big difference, whether that's when to have sex, when to go out for dinner. This doesn't mean there isn't room for compromise, but agency is key. I need to feel like I can throw the brakes on something or that I will be hurt if I say I'm uncomfortable, said the survivor. No means no at Survivor Naomi Summers. There's no gray area, and don't feel badly because you're saying no. Five, respect your partner's needs. Survivors may have a specific survivors may have specific needs to deal with triggers in the past that seem simple but are critical for safety. For example, Dr. says if if the survivor comes to your home and wants the curtains to be closed, don't have an argument about that. Rather to have the curtains be closed. Respecting a partner's needs can help survivors manage memories of the past and feel more comfortable in intimate situations. If a partner needs to put a stop to something, understand it isn't personal, it's what they need to feel safe. If a survivor says, I don't want to have oral sex, that isn't something I'm comfortable with, whether it's giving or receiving, understand that this isn't about you, says doctor, that's not personal. The survivor can practice articulating their specific needs within a safe relationship where they are heard and honored. Not only does this facilitate the survivor's recovery, it also builds trust and intimacy. Six, let the relationship move on, move at its own pace. Recovery moves at its own pace for each individual survivor based on the type and length of trauma. The support system a survivor has and many other factors. For this reason, recovery is in a straight line. Understand that time for a survivor is going to look very different than it is for you, says doctor. Understand that their recovery is fluid and can change from day to day and just accept that. What's true one day may not be true the next and has a lot to do with where they're at in the process in their process. Similarly, relationships will move at a unique pace as you learn to communicate, prioritize consent, and discover healthy intimacy together. The relationship may not look like your friends' relationships. Your milestones may be completely different. That's normal, and there's no need to compare. Seven, celebrate recovery together. Finally, know that recovery takes many steps, big and small, along the way, but it is indeed possible. Couples can celebrate every step of the process together. If you're recovering from trauma or survivor, we have to notice the small changes we make every day, says Stalker. If you're able to make one small change, celebrate that. And as you celebrate every small change that you make, you'll make larger changes. But if you don't notice the small changes, it's impossible to make bigger ones. Recovery isn't easy for survivors, so celebrate even the small steps forward in the process as you grow together. Because eventually you and your partner can build a loving, trusted relationship worth staying in for the long haul.